I think most of us would agree that very few of us are experts at waiting. In fact, for most mortals that I know, anyway, waiting is hard. But there are many occasions when it's the right time to wait. Let me give you an example. Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday, of course, is the Saturday of Easter weekend. And it's that kind of empty, boring type of waiting that, well, I'm trying to refer to that kind of waiting today. However, especially for those of us who already know the rest of the story, in other words, those of us who know what's coming up on Easter morning, Holy Saturday is the right time to wait, even though it's kind of quiet and empty. It's still hard to wait because there's a great deal of silence. There's nothing happening. We're waiting. There's dead silence. There's inactivity. Kind of like waiting to hear from the doctor's office about a biopsy. Kind of like waiting to hear crucial news about some of the most important things in our lives. Waiting is hard, no doubt. For most mortals, I'm sure. But what we often overlook is that the God of life, the God of love, the God of power, the God of fire, the God of comfort and love and action is always working behind the scenes in the silence. Yeah, it's often time to actively wait for just a bit. Some have even called this holy waiting. Holy waiting is the right time to wait It's time to allow God to do God stuff, right? But how do you know when it's the right time to wait? I'm sharing with you today from the first chapter of Acts. In this first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus replied to them, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So ends today's first gospel reading. Thanks be to God. Well, let's take Only a few moments to comment on this introductory portion of today's scripture. Let's answer uh, for what is for many an age-old question that only a choice few people deem to be important. And then we'll move on to what I believe to be the meat and potatoes of this week's Pentecost message. Hmm. After Jesus was taken up into the clouds, 
Yep, the Bible says Jesus was taken up into heaven in full view of his friends to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, the Apostles' Creed says. Well, this ascension event is noted both in the beginning of Acts as well as in no less than a couple gospel accounts. There are other writers in the New Testament that mention this account as well in different ways. What's revealed here is, in my opinion, what amounts to, let let me put it to you this way, the theological geeks are giving us a glimpse, they're giving us a snapshot of what's referred to as the ascension, which for many, many church defenders and proponents over the centuries has has been a major part of their core bedrock defense of the divinity of this Jesus of Nazareth. You scholars know that especially during this time and in the couple hundred years that followed, the church in that day felt that it had to develop, codify, and publish theological doctrines that clearly stated and courageously defended the holiness and the divinity of Jesus as God's Son as Jesus, as part of that trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, many scholars believe the primary reason John wrote his gospel late in the first century was to depict and present Jesus in such a lofty and divine way that detractors could no longer mount arguments against his divinity. The Apostle John clearly presented Jesus as the miracle-working Son of God, which was John's addition to the church's library of theological treatises and doctrines that were gathered to defend the faith, especially in the early years of Christianity. Church historians know this library was a crucial building block of the early church. But most folks who are just trying to make it through another day don't have a lot of use for churchy doctrines, though. In fact, in all my years as a pastor, I only know of one young man who gave me what amounted to a theological ordination exam before he would join the local church where I was pastoring at the time. Kevin? Kevin, I'll never forget you, my friend. Honestly, though, Putting all musing and meandering aside, what is important about this miraculous ascension moment? And what difference can these theological doctrines possibly make in my daily life today? You know, the last question that I posed about what difference can it make in my life? That is the question that most people want an answer to. My experience is that people want to hear from a preacher about something that actually will make a difference in their daily life. Quote, tell me something that can help me find more meaning in life, I often hear. And some brave souls might even say it this way, teach me something that can help me be a better person. All that said, and with that goal in mind, the goal of making a measurable difference in our daily life. Let's focus together now our lives and our energies on the outstanding event, the outstanding play that changed the game in the early church, and we call it 
the day of Pentecost. I'm only going to read to you a few verses from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So exactly what are you and I supposed to do on Pentecost Sunday? What are we supposed to learn? And most importantly, what's the take-home for us today that would curb my ongoing desire to throw my remote control at the 5 o'clock news? I know, right? Come on. There's got to be more to Pentecost Sunday than just remembering to wear our red shirts to church. Just saying. Friends, I've preached a lot of boring Pentecost sermons over the years. I, too, have included the theatrics of having um, people, several people, reading the Pentecost biblical text, all in a different language, so folks could get a broader sense of what actually happened that day when the power of the Holy Spirit filled the lives of people from many different nations and different cultures. But honestly... Very few church history lessons and very few organized dissertations on theological doctrines mean squat to most people that I know, especially most people I know in Yuma, Arizona these days. So let's wrap this up. Let's get to the point and bring this puppy home. Because friends, the eggs are getting cold and the fried chicken is getting soggy. In brief, on Pentecost Sunday, I'm going to give you like a a summary, like the crux of what is in many, many history books right now. In brief, on Pentecost Sunday, we as church people in the 21st century, we observe, we recognize, and we celebrate that after being with the disciples for about 40 days, and then after a short amount of time, which followed his glorious resurrection, and then after Jesus having caught a red eye back to home sweet home in heaven, that was the ascension that we just read about. All this was followed shortly thereafter by the powerful visitation of God's Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost Sunday is all about. The power of the Holy Spirit was there, teaching, equipping, and empowering Jesus' followers to get out there and change the world in God's mighty name. The Holy Spirit was empowering them to begin, develop, and grow what we call in our day and time, the church. There you have it. There you have that that theological core bedrock foundation of church history. Now, do you feel like your life has been changed for the rest of the day? Maybe not. Friends, this, this is sort of how the ivory tower church gurus, historians, and theological types would say it. But you and I know very few people who still live in ivory towers, right? In truth and in practical terms, which is what matters most to people today, I think many of the disciples at this very crucial time were still reeling from the three-year adventure with Jesus of Nazareth, which quite possibly 
quite possibly, was over. Yeah, I think they were still trying hard to figure out what they truly believed about what had just happened. And like us, they were in the process of sorting out and understanding what their daily faith in Jesus would mean for their life in the trenches, their life that was still all about fishing and carrying water and figuring out how to keep their families alive. Would what just happened actually make a significant difference in their lives? And now that the promised Holy Spirit had been, had been given to them, what would that mean? Exactly how? were they to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth when they possibly, possibly still had some thoughts of Jesus still lying dormant in a lonely grave somewhere outside the city gates. Was it really the risen Christ that those two disciples met on the road to Emmaus? Was it actually Jesus of Nazareth, their teacher and Lord, who miraculously came back to life and after about a month or so, was taken back into heaven on a cloud? I think it's possible, friends, that as Jesus was rising on the clouds, as he was rising, their hearts were sinking, at least temporarily. But since you and I today, we live on this side of the resurrection, we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Yes, we already know the powerful, life-changing experience with Jesus of Nazareth never did end. It never was over, was it? The adventure with Jesus and the power of the promised Holy Spirit coming upon all of those folks on that Pentecost day, all that was just the beginning. Indeed, God was at work in what we often sense as only silence, slumber, and inactivity. Yeah. God's silent action is, was, and always will be, very often, God's way of changing the world. Let me say that again. God was at work in what we often sense as only silent slumber and inactivity. God's silent action is, was, and always will be, very often, God's way of changing the world. And that's what we're talking about today. When is the right time to wait? Ah, yes. Maybe that's what the waiting, the wondering, and the power, and the wildfire of Pentecost is really all about. So what's next for us today? What's next for Yuma First Church, especially with all these continual changes going on with with uh, uh, the CDC and the changes in the places that we visit and changes in how and when and who, do, who can we be near? What's next? There's still so many moving parts in the world. Perhaps, friends, it's time again to do some holy waiting. It's time again to allow God to put into place the next steps the needed building blocks, in the currents of grace and love and comfort and power that are bringing Pastor Mike Wilkerson right here to downtown Yuma, Arizona. What does God have planned for Pastor Mike's arrival? 
And what is God doing? Actively, powerfully, but silently in the background as we wait. Well, that's where you come in. Let me offer you three quick suggestions. Leaders, leaders of the church, please continue to be wise, diligent, and faithful in your decision-making. In fact, this church's, Yuma Yuma First Church's reopening policies and procedures are being reviewed again this week based on the fairly new CDC guidelines. Decisions are already in the making for all of us who are wondering what's next. Believe me, your leaders are working in the background. I can tell you for them, it hasn't been very silent. But for all of us in general, if it's time to wait, leaders, please patiently and wisely lead the congregation in a time of holy waiting. Secondly, to the rest of us, fellow faith travelers, please respect and honor the decisions of your elected and trusted leadership. Please support them, pray for them, love them, care for them, walk beside them. Understand that they make decisions for this faith community as a whole body, as a whole family, even when some short-sighted people often put undue pressure on them. Thirdly, please remember that your new pastor has been waiting patiently for his time, his God-chosen time to bear fruit for God's glory right here in Yuma, Arizona at Yuma First Church. Make preparations now to receive him, teach him, love him, challenge him, guide him, listen to him, follow him, and be prepared to wait for him to catch up to you. Yes. These things I just mentioned are just a few examples of what I would call and what I am calling today holy waiting, which is the right time to wait. So exactly when is the right time to wait? I close with this personal story. Wendy Brownie and I have been kind of living in a kind of that in-between times. You know what I mean. We're ready. We're willing. We're poised to move on. We're packing boxes. We're preparing. It's like we're living also in the already, but not yet. Kind of like runners on a race, on a racetrack. When the starter of the race shoots the gun and somebody there's a misstart in some way. They start to run, but they stop the race because somebody jumped the gun. They have to wait to move forward. Already, but not yet. That's where we are in the stage of our move and in the stage of our future transition. Accordingly, friends, Wendy Brownie and I are actively moving forward all while having to sit, wait, and pause with a lot of open boxes sitting around us at the house. The coffee and the teapots, of course, will remain on the counter until moving day. My most comfortable shoes will remain next to my lazy boy recliner. Our favorite cups, charging cords, and devices, and obviously our medication duffel bags will remain unzipped until the moment we leave Yuma, Arizona. Brownie's favorite toys will continue to be scattered all over the house. Sure, it's hard to wait, 
But we understand that now is the right time to do some holy waiting, to allow God to lay the foundation, bringing about needed and sought-after changes. Indeed, often it's the right time to wait. Yes, even as we wait, Wendy, Brownie, and I will keep working and we will continue to focus our lives on being ready for the day that we will leave Telegraph Pass in our rear view mirrors. Yeah, I know, I get it. Waiting can be tough. And waiting can be very frustrating. But we all know there will always be the right time to wait. Lord of power, Lord of harvest, you gave your disciples the mandate to be your witnesses around the world. And then you empowered them with your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to accomplish this task. May we, like them, serve you faithfully. May we, like them, walk as children of the light. May we, like them, move in the power of the Spirit and move our lives and ministries to be to be indwelled and infused with your divine supernatural touch and authority. May we, like them, quietly, with wisdom and understanding, know that you're never inactive, but that you're always working silently, but effectively behind the scenes, putting things into place so we can be ready to follow you into the world, changing the world as the kingdom builders you've called us to be. Amen.